Hello, and welcome to Technically Speaking, where scientists and engineers come together to chat about common interests, share knowledge, and satisfy some curiosity. I'm Antonia, and I'm joined by Emma and Laura to talk about biophysics and how computer simulations and artificial intelligence can help develop drugs. So, to start off with Emma, what's your interest in this as a physicist? I just finished my master's in physics and my master's project in itself was um, testing alternatives to antibiotics um, in the lab and then using molecular dynamic simulations to complement that and kind of further the research. And the general idea of that was to test um, both in the lab and in the simulations two or three uh, alternatives to antibiotics and then use that data to kind of compare and see what works, and then to just all, just test a completely new alternative in the simulations, um, having like backed it up with the experimental data. And so I looked into, because it's a master's in physics, kind of like, um, although it's very biology-based masters, um, setting up the simulations and how um, the different, like, distances between the you know alternatives antibiotic and the membrane made it be more effective or less effective and how that was also shown in the lab work um because building a representation of this molecule can be done within a few days uh, on the simulation but to actually build it in the lab can take um months and months and then you also have like uncontrollable um defects that arise from lab work like purities in the samples it's always a mess so it's interesting for me to see how far can we actually push this idea of using simulations to um, complement the lab work will it save more time and money or how useful is it going to be and so that's kind of my background on using simulations to develop drugs that can help in like a biophysics um setting i guess Oh, that's really interesting, um, you know, the practical aspects and almost like checking your your simulation against real life, but then also having to compensate for all the messiness that can come with real life experiments and, and the lab and all those un- uncontrollable factors. Um, so, no, that's really interesting. And that was actually kind of why we wanted to uh, talk about biophysics in this episode, wasn't it? So... Laura, what about yourself? How's your uh, jack-of-all-trades working? (laughs) (laughs) My PhD was computational chemistry. It was not involving drug development. It was for these um, fairly complex polymers for carbon capture. Um, But I learned quite a lot about how you do the simulations and how you could apply that to other things. There was someone in my lab, um, computational lab, that was working on... um, getting proteins through membranes and doing all sorts of things with those. Uh, And picking up on what Emma was saying about you get messy things going on in the experiments, I agree completely. And I was always working with like um, really idealized versions of the polymers. And I did think, well, if that bond hasn't formed in the same way in the lab, how representative is my experiment on the computer? But the experimentalist would always say to me, well, you're working with all these approximations of how atoms interact. So how can you say that your simulations are accurate? (laughs) So which is best? Who can say? Depends on what you enjoy, I guess. (laughs) Or or maybe how, or the best of 
best of a bad lot maybe not a bad lot maybe <laughs> yeah I always really like the fact that I could see exactly what my atoms were doing I didn't have to sort of try and figure it out from what was going on with an experiment so that was always my real interest I can see precisely what's happening would you say you also prefer the simulation Emma living in the in the computer <laughs> rather than in the lab yeah I mean for starters the simulations I can do in my bed which is always very nice. Um, but I know I did have the problem where I had to redo a lot of the lab work or like it was very like the lab work I was doing is very dependent on external vibrations and involved like hand injections. So if you were a bit shaky, you had to completely start over again. And so it was a lot of like repetitive striving for perfection. You know, if you were more tired one day or had maybe another coffee that you shouldn't have, then you're like, well, the lab work's going to be a bit ruined today. Um, and also, like you said, with seeing the exact picture of what's happening, when something that shouldn't happen happens in the lab, it's always, that's why, I and mean, that is why you do repeats as a scientist, but you're always like, is that because of this new experiment I did? Or is that because I just made a mistake and I didn't clean something properly? Um, and I feel like it's harder to like actually understand what's going on just by looking at the bulk behavior of the experiment that I did anyways. So I think I did enjoy the simulations, um, but also it is nice to be able to sit down and do them and not have to wear gloves and goggles for in the labs all day. Um, so maybe that's got a part to play. I'm not sure. Yeah, and the idea that a lot of the people I knew that were doing experimental work in the lab had to go in at like weird times or go in at the weekend because the only time equipment was free. And my simulations, mm. like, I set them off in the evening and come back in the morning, and they're complete. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can analyse them during the day and then set some more off overnight. Repeat. It gave me a lot better sort of work-life balance. Yeah, once I had to work around, like, the other people using the lab equipment. Um, whereas, like, you send a simulation, you just get added to the queue, and then automatically it just runs, it ran the simulation for me. So it was, um, I think, a bit more enjoyable in that sense. And it felt a bit more physics-y. Because when I was doing lab work, I felt like, do I have like enough lab experience to be good at this? Um, so I feel like it was a lot of the first few months were very trial and error, which was a bit of a waste of time in the end. But it happens <laughs> with lab work, you always waste time. It's a learning experience. It was. Yeah, the closest thing I can relate to in that way was when I was working on a particular project in the lab for three months. And uh, we didn't know how the interaction would happen. Um, we just kind of hoped in theory it should work. And when I was trying to read textbooks to figure out what would be, uh, what would happen, um, the the end goal was just, we just need to see if it works. It doesn't matter if it theoretically works, just if it works or not. <laughs> so I was just in the lab three months just <laughs> running the same thing over and over. Um, and yeah, it does get physically tiring. Mm. Was that in your undergrad in uh, chemical engineering? It was a summer internship oh. that I did in a nanotechnology company, which sounds really cool. Um, <laughs> but um, but for me, it, it was it was a shock to the system. Suddenly working nine to five in the lab, you realise how much uh, how how tiring it is to be on your feet all day, <laughs> oh. and how difficult it is when you have to like think am I clean when you leave the lab and, you know, go, go to like have a drink or whatever. I was quite dehydrated. Oh yeah. Uh, sort of thing you get used to though. 
I've done lab work in like 34 degree heat because I had to because I had a deadline. I mean, actually physically in a chemistry lab Oof. wearing these like really thick rubbery gloves because I was dealing with a, a chemical that would absorb through normal latex gloves. Oh, no. It's very uncomfortable. It's another pro of uh, doing computational work. Mm. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I feel like we're getting a little bit distracted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So on the basics of biophysics i i kind of understand the general idea that physics is atomic level chemistry is sort of you know the ions and electrons interacting so a bit bigger looking at more like the molecule and then biology is sort of the result of molecular interactions but then how does biophysics work with skipping the whole chemistry step Mm. how do you um how do you understand biophysics to to fit into the whole uh, science picture? I think this is a really good um, question because I'm about to do a PhD in biophysics and I've technically just done my master's in biophysics. So I really should know what biophysics actually is. Uh, but I think, <laughs> um, and I looked at the definition and by definition, it's the application of physics laws to understanding biological phenomena. Sounds reasonable. And I think that makes sense, especially like maybe the, the start of biophysics. But I think now as like physics has also like begun to advance different fields, you know, like in computation and AI and like optimization, that's become like quite a large area of physics. Um, I think that has also been kind of incorporated into biology now. And that's now biophysics by definition. But I think it's just using physics to model and interpret to try and understand and advance what we know about biology and I don't think it does skip out chemistry. I think it's just a name thing because I feel like I've done a lot of chemistry under the name of physics or under the name of biophysics <laughs> because I don't know what actually chemistry is anymore apart from um, like titration. That's all I know is my GCSE <laughs> physics, GCSE chemistry. It's just titration. And then everything else I know, I'm assuming is either biology or physics, but it's probably chemistry <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Fair enough. So you're describing chemistry as just things changing colour from a titration. That's all I know. That's all I've been taught that chemistry is because I think, you know, orbitals and energy levels, I've been taught that as physics because it's about like angular momentum and like the pole exclusion principle. And so I just, maybe I just view it as physics um, because that's the way I was taught it. But I think a lot of people would say, you know, energy levels is chemistry. But for me, I would never say that. So I think it's just depending on how, I think it's also a bias thing. I think I'm like, oh, biophysics is different and it's still physics, <laughs> but chemistry is completely different. So maybe kind of going also... back to that whole chaos mathematician in his cool leather jacket. <laughs> how many times can we fit that Jurassic Park reference in? <laughs> <laughs> uh, see, I tend to think of chemistry. So after my... Um, PhD in computational chemistry ended up doing radiation chemistry in the lab Uh, so I tend to think of chemistry as things that involve electrons and how the electrons that orbit Mm -hmm. the atoms interact because radiation chemistry was a lot about what happens to the atom when it's exposed to radiation what electrons come off it where do the electrons go do you get ionization that sort of thing which starts to become physics when you're looking at those interactions of the electrons with things so, and the computational chemistry essentially relied on the principles of physics anyway. So, yeah, they kind of all blur in my head a little bit as well. Other than radiation yeah. chemistry is definitely about electrons. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the examples that Emma came up with when we were planning this episode was actually about simulating protein folding, or at least that came up 
in the what's the other episode on oh my gosh chaos chaos theory mm, mm-hmm. from my perspective that that kind of scale of atom is is that not more biology than chemistry or physics or could you break it down to chemistry which i would understand it as functional groups interacting with each other to create a new um molecule or group i mean i think the functional groups in chemistry is is what i would not to like switch it again but like in biology building up an amino acid sequence that is entirely dependent on the the functional group of the amino acid and so i feel like it i feel like it's all just um a name a name game of what what are you going to call this area of science and what fits with it the most if you have a physicist doing it does that make it physics maybe or maybe it maybe it's it maybe it's been chemistry all along um but i think i think physics is the physics part of biophysics is when you're actually like setting up the simulations using newton's laws to be able to understand those interactions and looking at like maybe i guess the smaller scale um interactions and how you actually build up that representation and then the biology is more how it behaves and how does that work within the body and then like i said chemistry i don't really i don't really know it's there though it's (laughs) It's it's definitely there yeah and for me uh, the simulations that i was doing um you weren't you couldn't really look at what the individual electrons are doing so i said chemistry is all about what the electrons do it was more about if you've already got a molecule and things are already bonded together, how does that interact with other molecules or with other parts of the molecule? And that was, as you say, very much about looking at the physics and how these, they're called non-bonded forces or non-bonded potentials. Mm. How do they cause things to interact? So essentially, if you've got this cloud of electrons around a nucleus, how does that cloud of electrons make things happen to another cloud of electrons without actually making electrons come off it? Mm-hmm. That was the limit of the computational chemistry, but beyond that, you're getting into weirdness. Things that you wouldn't do in a molecular simulation, really. I feel like we need to explain what molecular simulations are and how they work now. So that was a very hazy example. I can give that a go. I mean, I should be able to, like I said. I should be an, I should be an expert on this podcast. Um, but how I set up my uh, molecular dynamic simulation, and it does differ between what software you use, of course, um, was to build a force field that's just like a potential. It's not the same thing. Don't mix them up. <laughs> you differentiate it's the same thing. I'm confused now. I heard force field and I just imagine immediately just imagined like a, a colourful light dome just like appearing around you. Yeah. Even though I... I, I know what forces are. What is a force field? It just describes all the forces that are there in like a in an environment. Oh, okay. your force field is the forces that are there. Okay, not a shield. Okay, <laughs> got it. So yeah, law is correct. Potential is is the correct word. But you differentiate, use calculus anyway. It all becomes the same thing. Um, but you started off with a potential that describes uh, your system and. We started out with using, like, describing every atom. And so, like you said, with the non-bonded interactions and the bonded interactions, your non-bonded can be your, like, electrostatic attraction um, that is happening between the atoms, but also you have this thing called van der Waals potential. And so it's basically just, like, a massive, like, equation that has all the terms that describe interactions between the atoms. And even in itself, that is simplified and modeled in certain ways. Um, But then once you have this potential, 
then you can use Newton's laws and you can differentiate to get the the force. And then <laughs> using Newton's laws, just like everyone knows, your force is equal to mass times by acceleration. And you can get kind of a data set of the positions of the velocities and the accelerations of these atoms that are in your system. And once you know where an atom is, how fast it's going and its behavior, you know, in the next time step, then you have like a simulation and obviously you just visualize that um, using the data set that you have. Um, and so that's like the at- all using every atom, but um, when you're doing simulation, but you know, it's all well and good having a perfect description of a molecule with every atom being described well. Um, but then you go to actually run a simulation and you don't have the computational power to understand how that system behaves longer than maybe a picosecond. And so you have to start <laughs> having approximations and grouping the atoms together so you can have longer simulations so you can like observe the time evolution of the system. And so that's my, I use like, and that's processes called coarse graining. So I use coarse grain simulations to see how these proteins move throughout the membranes and how they attach. Um, and so, but even like I said, like using those simulations, you have approximations. And so they're not this kind of exact um, way to understand how systems evolve in themselves. It's like, there's a lot of research that goes on to how can we make this simulation more um, accurate? And it's by comparing with experimental data. And so there's a lot of kind of back and forth between validation with experiments and then validating that with simulations and then using that to build this up. And it's like kind of a symbiotic relationship, I think, between them. But it's just all about the approximations in the end. It's very interesting because I I never try to do a simulation on that kind of level. But um, a picosecond doesn't sound very long because when I'd been in a chemistry, you know, when I did a chemistry lab and was doing reaction like... Uh, well, I say doing a reaction. <laughs> I mean, I mean experimenting. You know, putting different chemicals together and trying to observe a reaction. Um, it it does feel like it happens very fast, but I'm not sure it happens like picosecond fast. <laughs> so, you know, with with that kind of constraint of like single atoms being um, simulated to coarse grain, sort of how how long can you pr- prolong your simulation, or is that long enough to get to the um, sort of reaction you wanted to see or mm-hmm. is that just simply you know you've seen the the atoms move that little bit but do they actually have their interactions yeah I think it, it all depends on a lot of how you set up your simulation so if you had your simulation set up because also you can use another part of how physics comes into this because I did do a physics master's was the thermodynamics and how you like set up the thermodynamic conditions of your simulation which is the idea is to try and mimic the experimental like temperature and pressure and so obviously if you have a higher temperature then your molecules are going to move faster and so they might reach the membrane quicker and so you might need a slower uh, simulation time in order to basically what I wanted to observe was the binding to the membrane and Mm. that also depended on how far did you place the peptides from the membrane to start off with if you place them too far away Maybe they'll never go there. Um, and so it was a bit of a balance between how, how can I... But we went for about one microsecond in the end um, because that allowed like some the binding and some behavior after the binding to be visualized. But you know, using it at higher temperature, placing them closer to the membrane could have 
got more long-term behavior in that one microsecond. So I think mm. you have to do a lot of like trial and error to understand what a good time frame is. But also it doesn't make sense to run simulations at picosecond length anyway, because when you have like Brownian motion and like just the random motion of particles under just obviously just having some energy, like kinetic energy, um, you don't want to interpret that movement as being determined by some biological process when particles are always going to move. And so you want to try and have a bit of a long-term view on it anyway, just to understand the behavior. Um, so I think it all depends on what time frame, um, how long you want to look for after binding, before binding, but also on the conditions you use anyway. I think it differs a lot. Individual atoms and small molecules can move quite quickly. So a few picosecond simulation for something mm-hmm. like some amines in water, it's probably quite a long time. <laughs> yeah. I think one thing, one of the limitations is, so you mentioned that you're sort of, you're solving Newton's equations of motion and using a time step. And that time step is incredibly small. Uh, and the reason for that is if you use a bigger time step, your atoms might have moved too far from one time step to another. So you'll get this really weird unphysical result where you could end up with mm-hmm. two atoms overlapping where they shouldn't and your mm-hmm. simulation will just fall apart. Yeah. So the limit is sort of moving the atoms a really small amount for each step in the simulation and then recalculating the force each atom has on the other atoms and then using that to say, well, the next time step, this atom will move this way. So you have this picture of usually it's atoms vibrating around really quickly, mm-hmm. yeah. which is what atoms do at room temperature anyway. So we're all vibrating right now. I forgot where a picosecond fit on the whole like magnitude scale. So I just looked it up and it's 10 to the minus 12. A millionth of a, a millionth. Trillionth. Yeah. Trillionth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So millionth of a millionth of a millionth of a second. Oh yeah. Is it a millionth of a millionth of a millionth? Does it add our times? Hmm. I guess 11 zeros behind the decimal point. Yes. So very, very small. And in the lab, obviously, you're not, you can't resolve that. <laughs> you can't, no, no, no equipment can resolve that. So I guess it can also allow you to see some different behavior of different timescales if you're using simulations. But also, I don't know where in the world has a computational power to simulate an experiment for 45 minutes if you're using in like an atomistic representation. That would just... That would drain every every memory, every bit of memory that you have. You normally do these simulations, and I used a, a high performance computing cluster, mm-hmm. uh, and I was yeah. using sort of like twelve processors that are more powerful than the standard desktop com- processor at the time. I was using twelve of those working together as one. Different parts of simulation running on each processor, and I know computational power has become better in the intervening years. It's been ten years since I did my PhD. But it's still a bit of a limitation. How many atoms can you simulate in a simulation? Or how many? How long can you run that for? Given mm-hmm. that you're spreading this across different processes and you've got to consider how much RAM is required as well. Yeah. Uh, as I said, my simulations ran overnight. So using 12 processes, like having 12 desktop machines all working together overnight to do something and then repeating every single night. <laughs> and my simulations weren't that huge either. They were... Well, few thousand atoms and that's that's not massive considering how big proteins are if you think about a drop of like a single like milliliter of liquid how many atoms could be contained in that a lot given my simulation boxes are only a few nanometers on a side yeah 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 Yeah, i was gonna say my simulation boxes i think were 15 nanometer cubes so tiny (laughs) very tiny simulation boxes how useful are those when when we only have a small 
such a, such a small sample compared to the sample or is it or could we say it's the same you know that that nanometer cubed is the same as one millimeter cubed not one millimeter cubed but millimeter <laughs> <laughs> a milliliter yeah, one milliliter yes one sort of trick that you use in simulations is something called periodic boundary conditions where you essentially say to the simulation that that little box i think we were both using cubic boxes it sounds like emma but they were sort of all replicated infinitely mm-hmm. alongside each other and you just wanted to make sure that the box was big enough so that when they were sitting side by side uh, an atom on the left of the box that would appear on the right of another atom when it was sort of mm. replicated wouldn't interact with that atom and with itself mm-hmm. so as long as your box isn't too small and you can sort of create this infinite tapestry of this um interaction then it's fine but i guess for your biomolecules emma you'd want that bigger box to make sure you didn't get that sort of self-interaction effect yeah 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 sometimes i change the size of the box because you can immediately tell like if you know you have that issue and like that's the one of the you can have like um different artifacts in your simulations from using periodic boundary conditions but in like essentially though like over like a cell membrane not like everything averages out but it does make a lot of sense to use periodic boundary conditions and kind of break the scale down um to be able to run simulations of that size and then it's i think it is very like scientifically accurate to say well this is now representative because that's the way you build the system up anyway and so i think it's it's important to just know that when you're when you're doing both the experiment and the simulations what what like what qualities can you compare between them and what makes sense to use one to inform the other like by looking at specific like parts of how things happen or even just comparing like if there's something happens in a simulation with one peptide quicker than the other peptide and in the lab you have the same behavior that's kind of makes sense whereas if you're comparing direct time scales that doesn't actually really make sense to do that so i think it's just about being careful with what information do you want to extract from both in order to compare it in a way that is makes sense and also is good like scientific practice <laughs> yeah. and i know for the polymers that i was looking at you talked about force fields emma so um describing how the atoms interact using potential energy <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are different potentials developed for different scenarios so mm-hmm. one potential might have been really good at accurately reproducing the density of my polymer for example another potential might have been really good at explaining how co2 interacts with it which is what i was looking at and so you have to pick the right potentials or the right force fields for the, the phenomenon that you're interested in and i suppose that's probably one of the slight limitations of molecular simulations is they can't infinitely replicate all the different interactions that atoms will have in all different scenarios so as you say it's about carefully picking what is applicable for the the picoseconds that you're looking at yeah because i think it also seems sometimes like simulations like like we said when we said oh you can just you know sit on your bed send them off it's nice and it always feels like this kind of magic solution but there's so much engineering that comes into figuring out what actually makes my simulation useful and it's in the way you set it up and figuring out those parameters and conditions to test, um, you know, can take a while to, you know, understand and optimize that. And maybe, arguably, it could take you just as long to figure out how to set up a good simulation as it does to build a new molecule in the lab. So I feel like at some point it becomes really circular where you 
you want to do some simulation work to stop you being in the lab all day, but then you end up debugging a simulation, <laughs> you know, just for just as long as you would end up waiting around. So I feel like it always seems a bit um, of a nice solution until you actually get around to it sometimes, um, which is a bit interesting. I definitely had that issue. Maybe not so much with debugging. Um, it was just trying to find the right coefficients for a reaction I was trying to model in um not in, not quite in a simulation i just it was just a it was just a, a model i suppose because it was just a sort of calculation just a bit of math yeah it was based on a couple uh, on some formulas but i couldn't find the right parameter for that particular chemical reaction which it would have been way easier if i just had the materials and just did it in the lab and then timed that and then <laughs> just took that into my equation but i didn't have that available um so it does sometimes feel like yeah if I could just have this in real life, and then maybe that's why I went towards engineering because I'm like, just be easier if I could just see it. <laughs> <laughs> but saying that, you know, with the power of computing going so far ahead, you know, that, that curve, I can't remember what's the curve of like, you know, computational power getting smaller and smaller. Do you see how, how this could help, say, pharmaceuticals and production of medical drugs and reducing that cost because I was reading about how expensive drug development is. There is a lot of discrepancy. Apparently um, some people are questioning if they are as expensive as the pharmaceutical companies say it is, but equally it still obviously takes a while as well to develop new medicine. So how do you think computer simulations help that? It can help a lot with, um, especially initial stages, where you're just deciding what do you want to build in the lab and then test, like doing the first round of testings. I think if you could simulate those, you could get rid of some kind of bad options almost immediately. And that would really help, you know, money-wise, if you're not putting a lot of money, I mean, I guess also people's time as well. Um, into making things. I did see an interesting reference in, in the Wikipedia article on cost of drug development that they said the cheapest stage is animal testing. Oh. <laughs> yeah, because it does rule out those drugs that you don't want really effectively. So a lot of mice, if we are able to simulate, then we can avoid animal testing. But in that case, you, if you want to know what the effect is on an entire body... You'd have to have some way of simulating that entire body or animal. So you'd have to have a computer simulation of a mouse and all of the chemistry that's inside it. I don't think that's yeah. even possible. Not at the minute, no. Even if you used all the tricks that you had to sort of coarse grain all the different parts of it. <laughs> so it wasn't all just atoms. It was like groups of atoms. But I'm not sure that's entirely necessary. It depends. You'd have to sort of filter out like what systems is that particular chemical acting on mm -hmm. like you mm -hmm. might not have any interest in like simulating the brain at all because it's not even getting to the brain so you'd have to have some way of figuring that out and i don't know if that's something that ai could help with because we mentioned this in a recent episode about how it could help with healthcare right that it, it analyzes patterns right and it uses this uh, data that people have fed it to train it to figure out patterns of things that are happening so maybe that would be one way it could help that it could say oh these drugs definitely aren't going to affect the brain so we don't need to simulate that bit of it or these drugs they're definitely not going to get anywhere near your bones so we can leave that bit out this is mad speculation by the way <laughs> <laughs> i read that one of the biggest areas is is that drug drug discovery drug selection in that you know someone knows i need a molecule that sort of fits this 
profile you know that whole setting up the simulation also so you could say you could do the same for a drug you're saying i want i know that this particular um, virus interacts with this area then we need something to to have that mechanism that stops that virus and so you know trying to find the right thing that fits that particular key seems to be one of the most difficult things and maybe yeah if imagine like a machine learning script um, going through different iterations to try and create a new molecule that has all those mechanisms that it can do maybe that would be one of the ways ai and machine learning is essentially the same thing right it's just different words for the same thing yeah yeah i think so but with um machine learning you have to have like how good your machine learning learning algorithm is is almost directly proportional to how good your training data is because that's all it has to go off and so if we had like more extensive training data for these different kind of um you know mechanisms in the body i feel like we could get to the point where ai becomes really good at recognizing what's going to be good and what isn't but i feel like it's so like one of the main difficulties with machine learning is having training data that works and you train your machine learning you're like yep great amazing move on to the next training set and it completely just does not work because it's got so used to the training data and so you need to have all these different sets of training data in order to actually confirm that your um your like algorithm now works when it's been tested multiple times and so i feel like it's actually so difficult to come i found just from speaking to friends who had some projects on machine learning is the actual training data size they have is so small um it's really hard to actually build up i mean i don't know what's happening in the big research groups at different universities but um just in like a small like little master's project um it was actually a, a huge problem that they had and so i feel like it's maybe it's just there's just limitations to everything anyway i wonder if that's one way that ai could help you know we're talking about trying to set up your simulation initially and it does take a bit of like understanding it well enough to know like, which force field to pick or which potentials to pick where to put your molecules initially so you're not creating all this really unphysical stuff there should be a massive amount of data out there from all the people that have tried it before on any simulation scenario you can think of like so i was looking at polymers you look at drug delivery and the people were looking at the crystalline materials and what they do so you could take all of that information about how to set up a simulation and what worked and what didn't and feed that into the ai so it could then predict oh you want to do this simulation so you set it up this way and it takes a lot of that legwork out that would be really good. I wonder how much storage we would need to be able to contain all those, especially the, all the failed um, experiments, because, you know, papers are generally like, I did this and it had this <laughs> great result. Very few, like, the, there might be some discussion of like, I tried this and it failed, but you're not going to really go through all the nitty gritty unless that was part of the novelty of your research. That is true. That is definitely something you can crowdsource from PhD students, though. So I made a lot of probably really obvious errors when I was setting some of my simulations up. Like, mm. I'd created black holes. <laughs> yeah. I had really intense pressures <laughs> in a, a nanometer box. <laughs> Wait, I thought last episode we were talking about how I was amazed that someone else created an artificial black hole and you've made a black hole. Why didn't you say that last week? Essentially, <laughs> yeah. When you when your calculations are saying, oh, the pressure is not a number anymore. <laughs> <I> just, <laughs> it doesn't really apply, though. <laughs> 
But I've had water doing all sorts of things that water probably shouldn't do. It wasn't all spread out nicely in the box. It was forming all these like weird little strings. <laughs> and I just, I'd set up the simulation wrong. That was it. Oh, I see. And you have to have that knowledge that water does not behave like this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah, get all the PhD students when they're learning this stuff to just feed it into a database and let the AI figure it out. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine how much faster it would be i feel like in the in the sort of starting phase when you're trying to set everything up you go through so much failure first if you just knew like how the setup should have been and then you could have just worked on the experiment that would have been so much faster wouldn't it Hmm. so there's a thing called the protein database right which is where people have figured out what the structure of these proteins are and you can just download the structure and go Hmm. and it's pretty quick Um, I assume, anyway. I never worked on them, so I couldn't say. But I think a lot of the legwork in that respect has been sort of taken out and you can concentrate on doing your computational experiment because people have put the effort into finding out what the structures are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess the question is, what happens next? So protein folding, I think, is still quite difficult to figure out. It's really complicated. I read something that said that, okay, so you've defined your potentials for your protein in this instance, but then as the folding continues the potential energies change, which means the potential set that you're using to do the simulation has to change. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. And at what point do you know that it's made that change as well? Yeah, and I imagine it's, yeah. it's not like a switch being flipped. It's a gradual mm. transition. Maybe that's something else that AI can help out with because it can learn when that switch is occurring and change over how the simulation runs. And yeah, simultaneous differential equations. That's <laughs> always fun. You just scared me then. Uh, not a fan not a fan at all but isn't that something else that is essentially happening in the simulation so you yeah (laughs) you're solving what thousands of equations of how yeah this atom has this force that acts on this atom and that atom and that atom so you're sort of solving way too many equations to even contemplate doing by hand Mm -hmm. and there's obviously a limit to what you can do in the simulations, right? In traditional molecular simulations. Maybe that's something else AI can help with if it's solving this sort of many-body mm-hmm. problem. Yeah, yeah. I think like a lot of like in terms of computation power, AI can definitely speed through, you know, sorting through what's actually useful to do and what's not. If like there's a way to train it to do that, that can just save a lot of memory in itself before you even run a simulation. Check you like I don't know. Find a way to check if that's even going to be worthwhile running, and then you can find you save not only time but a lot of memory and and money uh, in that way too. Yeah, and I read a few news articles that have said that AI is being used to develop drugs, and it has definitely brought down the development time. But they didn't specify exactly how, which I found a bit frustrating. Mm. Yeah, but I can also see if you're a company that's designed an artificial intelligence tool to take the legwork out you would definitely want to keep that a closely guarded secret yeah yeah definitely companies have to make money company secrets and their money making ways i guess we'll never find that out unless we're there and then we can't say anything about it so i think that's a good place to leave it i've definitely learned a lot from uh, emma and laura about how biophysics and simulations work i see the link sort of working with both atoms and bigger scale simulations could really help with understanding how the world works so (laughs) i'd say uh, that's a good end to the episode thanks for listening 
The views expressed in this podcast belong entirely to the person that said them. They do not represent any industry or organisation. If you enjoyed listening to these views, it would really help us out if you could rate us, leave a review and tell a friend. This podcast was sponsored by no one, but if you're interested in funding us to continue to have frank discussions about science and engineering, please get in touch.